once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Glad all of you are here with us today. What a great time of worship uh, we've had already. I want to begin the message today by showing you a picture here of uh, two cars. I encountered these cars in a a neighborhood get-together called Cocktails and Carburetors. I thought it sounded like a great social event, so I went. More to see the cars than for the cocktails. Uh, About 10 or 12 families from uh, the community brought out their sports cars. Uh, These were all older families because they're the ones who can afford the expensive sports cars, right? Takes a lifetime of saving. And uh, the one in the front you see here is an E-Type Jaguar. They were made between 61 and 75, and this is from the early 70s, and it sort of won the, the best in show competition that day. The one behind it, I don't I have in the picture very well, is in the blue car with the 13 on the side, was an Austin, is an Austin Healey, a Sprite uh, racing car from the 1960s. Uh, sweet would be the word to use to describe uh, either one of these, in my opinion. Uh, Probably like most men, I'm fascinated by powerful cars. I really am. Uh, Though I've never owned a car like either one of these, I do know this to be true, though. No matter how powerful the engine is, no no matter how sleek the design of the body, you don't experience the horsepower of the car. It doesn't actually go from point A to point B unless the rubber of the tires touches the asphalt of the road, correct? I've always loved that phrase, here is where the rubber meets the road. Well, in this five-week sermon series that we have been in, last week's sermon and this week's sermon sort of are where the rubber meets the road. We're in a five-week series in the book of Ephesians. Now, what is the book of Ephesians? Well, it's a letter that's contained in the New Testament. It was written in the first century by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians who are in a city called Ephesus. And as he writes to them, so to speak, we could divide the book, which has six chapters, into three parts on either side. The first three chapters are, if you will, a part of the book that gives us the drivetrain, the engine, the mechanism of Christianity. It shows us where the power is. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we are told how we are saved by the work of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit how it all is wrapped up in our being in Christ. It describes how he has brought us individually from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And then, very centrally to the purpose of the book, it shows us how he has brought us together to be the church together for his glory, a very central part of the message of this book. Well, that's the first three chapters. Then in the last three chapters, this is where the rubber meets the road. It tells us how we're to live life in light of the first three chapters. You might put it this way. Chapters 1 through 3 give us gospel indicatives, statements of what God has done, is doing, and will do for our salvation and His glory. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 give us gospel imperatives. We are commanded to live in a certain way in light of the truth of the gospel. That's what this book is all about. Now, don't you make uh, any mistakes about this. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. As Christians, we should be the last people on the face of the earth to have a holier-than-thou attitude. 
We should be more humble, more needy, more dependent, more gracious, more grace-giving than anybody on the face of the earth. Why? Because if anything is happening in our lives, it is 100% because of grace. Well, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we find out the newness of life that comes because of the grace of God. To use a phrase that Caleb used in one of his sermons a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus stands astride our hearts as Lord, what changes? And what we're going to look at today is a passage that basically says everything in and around your life will be new. There will be a newness about food and sex and possessions, a newness about truth and money and work, and a newness especially about relationships. But you're not going to experience that unless you experience it in a local church. The title of this series is Church Matters. That's what it's all about. And that, for us, that's a play on words. Yes, it's a verb, and yes, it's a noun. We're talking about matters of the church. But the main idea of this whole series is simply this. The church matters. It matters to God. It matters to God forever. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the church needs to matter to you. One of the disturbing things in the American culture right now is that people are disconnecting following Jesus from being part of a church. That's absolutely foreign to the thinking of Jesus and the thinking of the New Testament and the thinking of the apostles. You will never know the fullness of what God has for you, ever, without experiencing the brokenness and the weirdness and the grace and the beauty and joy of being part of a local church that is focused on the the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that we're focused on the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. Church matters. This is the title of the series. The title of today's sermon is New Life in the Church. And that's also a play on words. That means that there is a new life among us because there is a new life inside of us, a new way of living with one another because there's a new source of life inside of us. Last week, Caleb talked about the unity of the church It's a unity that is in existence. It's a unity that's been purchased by Christ and put into existence by the Spirit. And the passage there did not say create this unity. It said maintain the unity. In other words, how do we hang on to the unity given by the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus? How do we not tear apart what the Holy Spirit has put into place? We're going to see that it has to do with the new self and a new life and a new motive. Here's the big idea of today's message. You'll see it on the screen. The new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness, is evidenced by a new way of living and a new reason to live. The passage we're looking at today, like the last four weeks, is a little bit long, Ephesians 4, 17 through 5. Let me ask you to stand while we read God's Word. I'll be reading from the New International Version. And as I read this, I want you to notice that Christianity is not a solo experience, It's not simply an individual endeavor. We are to live life together because we need each other. This is what Paul says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, when you were converted, is the idea here, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. 
Surely you heard of him and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and at conversion, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Why? For we're members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but instead must work, doing something useful with his own hands. Why? That he may have something to share with those in need. Do you see the relational part of God's commands? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you. Please be seated. We're looking today at the new self, the new life, and the new motive. And even though it doesn't come first in the passage, it is central to the passage. So we're going to start with the idea of the new self, the new self. And here's the key question. Is a Christian simply a person who's acting differently? Is a Christian simply a person who is acting differently? Is Christianity essentially about a moral reformation? And the answer is no. It is essentially about a spiritual transformation. Now, don't misunderstand me. When someone comes to know Christ, there will be a change in the way they live. There will be new actions and new attitudes and new motives. There will be a moral reformation. But that's not what it's essentially about. It's essentially about a spiritual transformation. A Christian is not just a person acting differently. A Christian is a person who is metaphysically, spiritually different than he used to be, a brand new person. We see this in the text in verse 24. Paul says here in conversion, you have put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now the old self for me is the old Bob Cargo who was not born again. The new Bob Cargo, the new self is the regenerate version of me. It's what God has done within me actually to make me a new person. One of the leaders of the early church was a man from North Africa who later came to be known as St. Augustine. Augustine was born and was raised in what is now modern-day Algeria. He was born into an affluent and uh, influential family. His father was not a Christian, but his mother was. Augustine lived a very wild life as a young man, especially in regard to his many lovers. But after his dramatic conversion, one day he was in the marketplace of his city, And he happened to see at a distance, and she saw him, one of his old lovers. And she called out to him. Augustine was afraid that he might fall to temptation. So he started walking in the other direction. She walked after him. Then he began to run, and she began to run. And she was calling, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And finally he turned, and he yelled back in her direction, but it's not me. He said, I'm a different person. 
See, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Imagine a caterpillar, small, green, not very attractive, lots of legs. And one day it crawls up on a branch and it wraps a cocoon around itself. And out from that cocoon comes a brand new creature. Have you ever become a new creature by being in Christ? How does that happen? It happens by believing this good news of the gospel, to believe Jesus lived for me, he died for me, he was raised from the dead for me. God offers me forgiveness and transformation. I believe it's true. You turn from the lordship of your sin to the lordship of Jesus, and you put your faith in the cross to forgive you and reconcile you to God and to change you. And the day upon the day that you have that attitude is the day that you become a new creature in Christ. Notice again in verse 24, it says, we put on the new person, the new self that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is so full of meaning, we can't even explore it all today. Next week, I'm going to preach about union with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? And next week, we're going to find out about how our union with Christ brings us a declaration that we're righteous, and it puts inside of us a new holiness, and it changes our lives. This starts with the new self the new self. Secondly, we all not only have the new self, we have the new life. Now, let me give you a heads up here. Most of our passage is about the new life. Most of the sermon will be about the new life, but the third part is really short, so don't freak out when I talk about this one a little long, okay? Here's the idea. Because we have a new self, that leads into a new life. There is a new life among us because there is a new life inside of us. Now, we're going to look here very quickly at 11 verses, and in those 11 verses, Paul gives us 16 commands. Now, when I wrestled with this passage, I thought, how am I going to cover 16 commands without being here all day? And so, you'll be glad to know we're going to summarize those in three parts, and that's simply this. Number one, and number two, and number three is this. What does Paul tell us about our new lifestyle? He says this, number one, we're no longer ruled by sensuality. Number two, new habits take the place of the old habits. And number three, we do the hard work of unity. Now, if you're a note taker, you'll have plenty of time to write this down as we go. Let's look at those individually. First, he says here, this new life means that we are not ruled by sensuality. Look at verses 17 to 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. In the city of Ephesus, most of the people were Gentile, a minority were Jews. And when the gospel came to Ephesus, the, the church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And those who were Gentile converts were coming out of a culture that was a sex-crazed culture in society. I think we also, in our culture, are living in a sex-crazed society. If you're a follower of Jesus, your attitudes and practices about your sexuality will be different than the rest of the world. But I think this issue of sensuality has to do with more than just sex. Giving into sensuality could be having an addiction to food, having an addiction to drink. It could be having an inordinate love for beautiful possessions. It could be living life always for the adrenaline rush of the next thrilling physical experience. All those are forms of sensuality. 
What the Bible says is that as followers of Jesus, we are not ruled by those impulses and desires. We rule over them. Instead, we are ruled by the gospel of Christ and the spirit of Christ and the law of Christ. And just as Randy has just finished preaching in the series on the Ten Commandments, the law of God is good and spiritual, and it points us toward what it's like to be fully, truly human and to have freedom. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can have the power not to be ruled by those impulses, but instead to rule over them according to the will of God. Secondly, Paul here says here that new habits take the place of old habits. New habits take the place of old habits. Look at verses 25 to 28. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Do you notice here the relational reason to be a truth teller? In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sin go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Probably relational anger, we would say. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. And then there's a relational reason that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Many years ago, I heard a seminary professor preach on this passage. And in the introduction to his sermon, he says, to get the idea of this passage, I want to tell you a joke. It's not a funny joke. It's a corny joke. So you might want to groan if you don't laugh, but you don't have to do either one because I'm just trying to illustrate something. And the joke is this, when is a door not a door? And the answer is when it's a jar. Okay. Some of you are just thinking about that, aren't you? Okay. When is a door not a door when it's a jar? Well, when is a liar not a liar? When he puts on truth-telling. When is a thief not a thief? When he loves other people enough that he wants to be a generous giver. When is an angry person take off his anger? When he puts on forgiveness, when he puts on patience. Zacchaeus was a thief who met Jesus. He was a Roman tax collector. And he was stealing from Israel in order to get very rich. And when he met Jesus, how did he put off thievery? He put on generosity. He said upon his conversion, I will give half of everything I own to the poor, and if I've stolen anything from anyone, I will repay it four times over. We put on the new habits, and those new habits push off and push out the old habits by the power of the gospel. What does this new, look like, new life look like? We're not ruled by sensuality. New habits take over the old. And the third thing we see is that we do the hard work of unity. We do the hard work of unity. We see this in verses 29 to 32. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Last week, Caleb said, there is a unity that has been purchased by Christ and given by the Holy Spirit. It exists. It's real. Our job is to maintain it. Our job is not to tear it apart. Well, how in the world do we maintain this unity? It's through things just like this. This is the daily hard work of maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. Now, let me ask you, do your words tend to tear people down or build them up? God wants you to use words that build other people up. Is there anyone against whom you feel bitterness or rage 
or anger or maybe apathy. You know, apathy is a passive-aggressive way of hating people that God calls us to love. When I mention these things, does anyone's face come to your mind? Does anyone's name come to your mind? Who is God calling you to forgive and to give compassion to? And maybe, my friends, maybe it's not an individual. Maybe it's a whole group. Absolutely essential to this passage is understanding that sometimes it is whole groups of people against whom we feel bitterness and rage and anger and, or apathy. We just don't want anything to do with them. Let me ask you, this other group, this other age group that you don't like, this other socioeconomic group that you don't like, this other racial or ethnic group from which you want to keep your distance, this other political group that you disagree with so deeply, let me ask you, are there people in that group who are also followers of Jesus? And if there are, that means there are people in that group who are your brothers and sisters. And it means that there are people in that group that God calls you to love deeply and to walk in oneness and unity, even if you were different in so many, many different ways. Alex Viasana is one of our church planters here at Perimeter. He's planted over here in Norcross. The name of the church is Christos Community Church. It's about 50% Hispanic and about 50% other, mostly white. But the people in that church are from 10 different nations. And sometimes those of us who are North American, non-Hispanic Caucasians can think all Hispanic people who've come to America, well, they're all just alike. No, nothing could be further from the truth. 10 different nations, 10 different cultures, 10 different food groups, so to speak, 10 different ways of approaching life. And sometimes back there in Central and South America, they don't get along well at all. Alex's church is a church that the way they say it is our purpose is to celebrate the beauty of Jesus in diversity. And in the foyer of their church, they have a plaque. It's a plaque that often people put into their home, but they look at their church as a family. And so the plaque says this. You'll see a picture of it. In this house, we do second chances. We do real. We do grace. We do mistakes. We do I'm sorry. We do loud really well. We do hugs. We do family. And we do love. That should be the story of every single church. Dr. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, a church that is very diverse racially and ethnically, has said that when you have a church that's made up of people from a lot of different races and ethnicities and backgrounds, you're always having to forgive each other because you're always unwittingly offending each other and hurting each other. But the beauty of the gospel, my friends, is in that process of again and again forgiving and reuniting and forgiving and reuniting. And the world sees the only way this church can be explained is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, this whole theme of redemptive unity is huge in the book of Ephesians and is huge in the New Testament. That's the reason in this series that Jeff preached a few weeks ago from chapter 3. And here's what Paul said. Although I'm blessed and least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden from God who created all things. His intent is that now through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And what is the essence of this mystery? That the gospel is for all people. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, the Gentiles, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two into one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Imagine, if you would, this picture. Imagine that, that the Jews represent a, a small circle right here, and the Gentiles represent a large sort of semicircle right here. What Paul says here is the gospel has broken down this wall between the Jews and all of these Gentiles. But let's stop and think about it. There are white Gentiles and black Gentiles and Asian Gentiles and Hispanic Gentiles. And the very idea of the gospel is not just that it breaks down this wall, it breaks down every wall. It breaks down every wall. That's what the gospel does. It creates a new humanity. In preparation for this uh, message, I did some study, and one of the books I looked at was called the Reformation Study Bible. Dr. R.C. Sproul is the editor of the Reformation Study Bible. And if you know Dr. R.C. Sproul, he has absolutely no interest in being politically correct, okay? That is not his agenda. But in the introduction to the book of Ephesians in the Reformation Study Bible, this is the way it summarizes the message of Ephesians. Listen, it's a little bit long, but it's worth a lot. God is now revealing the mystery of His will, which is the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. The great evidence that this cosmic redemption is happening is the church, the body of Christ, His new humanity. In the church, God is uniting Jew and Gentile, that is, all other races, reconciling them and tearing down the wall of hostility between them and through the cross. That means then that the church is central to God's purpose in the world because it is a sign of the final reconciliation of all things in Christ. The church is God's precious possession, a colony in which the Lord of history has begun to fashion, don't miss this, the renewed humanity after his own image. The church is a community where God's power to reconcile people to himself is experienced in shared and transformed relationships. We could paraphrase it this way. The power of God to reconcile people to one another that have nothing else in common but Jesus, that powerfully demonstrates the power of God to reconcile us to himself. And it is the most powerful promise the world could see that one day all things will be reconciled according to the work of Jesus. You see, the central message of the New Testament is this, that Jesus is Lord, the resurrection proves it, and there's salvation found in no one else. That's the central message. But the central issue of the New Testament was this question, is this good news only for the Jews? And whether you look at Acts or Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, right on through the book of Revelation, it is a huge theme of the whole New Testament that basically says the answer to that question is, it's not for the, the, for the Jews only. It is for every tribe and tongue and people. And the world will see the gospel, that the gospel is true. When we are in churches together, and they see there's no other explanation for this church being what it is, containing who it contains, except this. God reconciles people to himself and God reconciles people to each other.
You may be thinking to yourself, I've been a Christian for years and years and years, maybe for decades. I've never really heard this thing about redemptive unity until very recently. Why haven't I heard of it before? And I'll have to tell you very honestly, it is the failure of preachers of my generation and older. We have failed you. In my preparation of this sermon, I've had to wrestle deeply with this reality. I've preached all the way through the book of Ephesians in three different churches I've pastored in the past, and I've never preached on this need for redemptive unity racially within churches. Why? Because I didn't understand the New Testament. Because I didn't understand something that could be unthinkable. And that is that God wants us in churches together. That is a powerful demonstration that Jesus is Lord. And so I can't speak for other ministers of my generation, but for me, I need to say this. Would you forgive me for my failure to preach accurately and understand accurately the Word of God? I failed. Nine years ago, we were privileged as a church to give some money to a guy named Stephen Phelan. Some of you who've been around here a long time remember Bart Garrett, who used to be our young adult pastor. One of Bart's childhood friends was a fellow named Stephen Phelan. Stephen went to San Diego to plant a church. It's called the Bridge Church. And when he went to San Diego, I went out to see him in the first year or two that he was there, and he drove me around the community. And in the middle of that community is El Cajon Boulevard, and on one side of El Cajon Boulevard, it is very affluent and almost all white. And on the other side of El Cajon Boulevard, it is very poor and overwhelmingly Hispanic. And as he drove me around the community, he said, Bob, my vision, my heart is to have a church that bridges both of these communities. And I didn't say to it, but I say it to him, but I thought to myself, you are absolutely crazy. This is never going to work. Well, nine years later, God has done a wonderful and powerful thing. This is a picture of some of the people of their church who went out one day to serve the community by picking up trash in the poorer side of their neighborhood. And Stephen shared with me this last week as we communicated with each other that the church now has about 300 people, about 60% are white, about 30% are Hispanic, 10% African-American, Asian, and African. And in this nine years, they have seen 275 conversions. But what glorifies God is much, yeah, praise the Lord for that. And part part of what has led to those conversions and the result of those conversions is that there is a church that is black and white and Hispanic and it is rich and it is poor and there are CEOs sitting next to homeless people and they're worshiping God together. Is this difficult? You bet it is. That's why the Word of God tells us forgive each other, be compassionate to one another, be kind to one another. This is the only way to live out this unity. It's difficult but it's doable. What does God want us to do here? Our community is becoming increasingly diverse. It's my opinion that God wants our church to reflect the diversity of our community and the power and the reality and the validity of the gospel is what is at stake for us. That's what the passage talks about. The new self. You're a new person if you're in Christ. The new life no longer ruled by sensuality, new habits kicking off the old, doing the hard work of unity. And lastly here today, we see the new motive, the new motive. Very briefly, 
What is this new motive? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's also our source of power. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The love of God the Father, the love of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, that's our example. We're to love like we've been loved. We're to forgive like we've been forgiven. We're to grace each other like we've been graced. We're to be kind to one another because in the cross, God gave us his kindness. We're to imitate Jesus. We're to mimic our heavenly Father. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we are to welcome the world into our church because Jesus accepts the world into his church. The cross is our example, but not only is it our example, it is our source of power. The Bible says here that the cross is not only the example of love, it's the expiation for our sin, it's the payment for our sin. In other words, the cross has power to bring forgiveness. The cross has power to bring transformation. It's only in the power of the cross that I can live a different life. It's only by the power of the cross that I can rule over my sensual desires and appetites and not be ruled by them. It's only in the power of the cross that I can have new habits take the place of the old ones. It's only in the power of the cross that I can do the hard work of unity. And it's only in the power of the cross that people can see this group of people. Golly, the only thing they have in common is Jesus. This gospel must be real. And it all comes by the power of the cross. That power comes to us through our union with Christ. Today we've ended our sermon by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. This table, this Lord's table today points to the cross, as you know. The bread, the wafers here represent the body of Christ broken for us. The juice, the wine represents the blood of Jesus shed for us. When we take communion, we stop and we remember. We remember a Savior who lived for us. We remember a Savior who died for us. We remembered how his body was mutilated, how his blood was shed, that we could be redeemed. But when we take communion, we do more than remember. When we are here partaking by faith, We commune with him. We fellowship with him. We dine with him. In fact, we feed on him spiritually. He is spiritually present with us. A minister from years ago, a Scottish minister named Reverend Robert Bruce, once said that in the Lord's Supper, we grasp Jesus with our whole hand. As if he were saying, when we hear of Jesus through the preaching of the word, it's like grasping Jesus with three fingers But when we have him with the word and the sacrament, we grab him with our whole hand and we grab him securely. This table is not primarily about what we promise to God. I guess it's not inappropriate in taking communion to say, Lord, I commit myself to you. I give myself to you. But it's not about what you promise to God. It's about what God promises to you what he's done in the cross and therefore what he promises to do in forgiving you and in changing you. But it's very appropriate as you partake today maybe to pray a prayer like this. Lord, as I partake, I'm putting my faith in Jesus to give me the power to not let sensuality rule my life. As I partake today, please give me the power that new habits would take the place of old habits in my life. Lord, as I partake of this today, please give me the power to do the hard work of unity Give me the power to get rid of bitterness and rage and anger and malice and apathy. 
Give me the power to put on kindness and compassion, to give grace, to be eager to forgive, to maintain this unity purchased by Christ. You see, when we trust in the cross, we trust in a lot more than it is to be forgiven. Reverend Thomas Boston put it this way, when we trust in the cross, we trust that we shall have life and salvation by Christ, namely the life of holiness as well as happiness, salvation from sin as well as from wrath, not in heaven only, but begun here and completed hereafter. It's very common when taking communion to seek forgiveness. You should. I should. We all should. But we should also, as we partake of this table today, ask God for the power of having a changed life. Who can partake of this today? It's all those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior and who have had that profession of faith in Christ ratified by the leaders of the congregations of a local church. You could be a member of a church and have never received Christ. Perhaps today you realize, I've never trusted Christ and become a new creature the way you described a little bit ago, Bob. Then today, even though you can't partake of these elements, of this wafer and of this juice, what you can do is receive Christ. Trust Him to come into your life today and receive Him as your Lord and your Savior. And then as quickly as you can, find a church that preaches this good news, become a member of that church, have your profession of faith ratified, and then as a member of a visible church, you can partake of this visible sacrament. It's for those who have trusted Christ. It's for those who have had that faith in Christ ratified by uh, the appropriate church leadership. But it also is for those who are coming humbly, who are coming confessing sin, but then coming joyfully that our Savior is bigger and stronger than whatever sin that there is in our lives. Your forgiveness in Jesus is bigger than whatever your sin is. The power of the cross is bigger than the power of your temptation. Believe it, and as you partake today, believe it with all your heart that the gospel is true. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for such a wonderful, powerful Savior. We thank you for this wonderful, powerful good news that is found in Jesus. Thank you that when we could not save ourselves, you came to save us. Thank you that you loved us so deeply that you gave yourself for us. And we ask you now that we would dine with you, that we would feed upon your strength, that we would believe with all of our hearts that you are present, and that we would grab you, not simply between two or three fingers, but with our whole hand by faith, we would grab on to the living Jesus. Thank you that you're here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.